0: The title of our sermon this morning is The Sovereignty of God. The Sovereignty of God. <clears throat> our text, Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. So it's a joy to be back with you now in our study of Paul's epistle to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 9. We've been carefully working through this text. Uh, and as we've been discussing already at length, uh, Paul has spent the first eight chapters of the book now, the first eight chapters of this letter. Uh, preaching to us, explaining to us the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The salvation of a sinful, undeserving people entirely, fully by the grace of God. That gospel, that salvation secured by the substitutionary work of God's own Son, and that salvation applied, that work of the Son applied to the believer by a work of his spirit in time. The righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ himself then imputed to the believer as a free gift of God's grace. It is given that righteousness is given, it's credited as um, through the instrumentality of faith alone, apart from any works of our own, apart from anything that you've done. And it is given through the means of faith so that it might be entirely according to grace. That's Romans chapter four. And it is entirely according to grace so that it might be sure that it might be certain to the promised seed of Abraham. And the promised seed of Abraham being all those who share the faith of believing Abraham. You are a descendant of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ, do you see? Now having developed that case through the end of chapter 8, Paul draws us to the conclusion that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To those who are in union with Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. Condemnation, And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Praise God. And the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And in conclusion of the case, there is nothing, no one and no thing that shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise God for the gospel. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 it is God, God alone within the deliberations of his own infinite mind, who determined in eternity to set his perfect love upon an elect people. It is God who foreordained that they would be conformed into the image of his own son. It is God who effectually calls them to himself in time according to his own purpose. It is God who applies the work of his son to justify them in his sight. It is God through his governing providence who works all things together for their good. And it is God who glorifies them together with his son for the purpose that he... The son, the only begotten son of God, might be the firstborn over many brethren who have been created anew after his own glorious image. Praise God for his work in salvation. So our salvation and the moral of that story, the lesson that we're to take away from all of that, is our salvation is entirely of God. Our salvation is, it depends entirely upon God. And our salvation depends entirely upon the faithfulness of God to his word. The reason that our salvation is so secure, the reason that it is certain to all the seed is because it, is in, it depends entirely upon the faithfulness of God to his own word, the faithfulness of God to his covenant promises. And that's the very reason, brothers and sisters, why our salvation cannot fail. It cannot fail. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 We hope in eternal life. It's the hope of the church. We hope in eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. If you notice, before you were born, before you had done anything good or evil, God promised. However, there are those who would say that a salvation by grace alone through faith alone, a salvation that includes believing Gentiles as much as it includes believing Jews, would mean that God has then failed Israel. They would say that an unbelieving and an apostate Israel is an indication that God's word is ineffective, that God's word has taken no effect, that God's word has failed to Israel. And if God has failed to keep his word to Israel, then how can we, who have believed in Jesus Christ, trust him to keep his word to us? That's the point, that's the the case, the objection that Paul now takes up in chapter 9. In chapter 9, having expressed great sorrow over the lost condition and the future judgment that awaits the Jews, his countrymen, according to the flesh, Paul then explains in verse 6, acknowledging their lost condition, the lost condition of Israel, Paul then explains in verse 6 that the word of God has not failed to them. It has not failed. It hasn't taken no effect because... They are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children of Abraham because they are the physical descendants of Abraham. But concerning the promise of God to Abraham in the gospel that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, God has been faithful to his word and he's been faithful to his word to save a people from every tribe and tongue by fulfilling that promise to a spiritual seed rather than to a physical seed. Romans chapter 9, verse 8, that is, those who are descendants of Abraham according to natural birth, they are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed of Abraham, and they are the ones, through faith in Jesus Christ, who inherit the promises, okay, who inherit the blessings, who inherit eternal life. Now, Paul's concern are the eternal destinies of those within the nation of Israel. That's Paul's concern at this point. The eternal destinies of those who are within the physical ethnic nation of Israel. And within that nation of Israel, there are those who are saved and those who are lost. There are those who are children merely according to the flesh, and there are those who are children of God according to faith, the faith of believing Abraham. There are those who are lost, and there are those who are saved. Those who are lost have been left by God to perish in their sin. Now, as an example, as an example, Paul first brings up the distinction then that God makes between the sons of Abraham himself, the two sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. Although both Ishmael and Isaac were the sons of Abraham, although both were circumcised and brought into that physical covenant, and even although Ishmael himself was the firstborn, God determined, God made a distinction between them, and God determined that it would be Isaac through Isaac, that Abraham's spiritual seed would be called. God had made a determination, and he made that determ- term- determination freely according to his own will that his purpose, according to election, would stand. And in the event that some might not be persuaded by God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael, given the fact that Ishmael was the son of Hagar, um, the Egyptian bondwoman. Paul then raises an example from the very next generation, the twin sons of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Although both Jacob and Esau were equally the descendants of Abraham according to the flesh, although both were conceived at the same time, although both had the same mother and the same father, and although Esau himself was the firstborn, before the children were born... Think about that for a moment. Before they had done anything good or evil, emphasizing the complete lack of any natural distinction between them, God made a distinction between Jacob and Esau. And God determined that it would be through Jacob that Abraham's spiritual seed would be called. As it is written, verse 13, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. The Jews, in all of this, made a tragic error. They made a tragic error in believing that they were e- entitled to eternal life, entitled to heaven because they had the blood of Abraham coursing through their veins. But listen, God is not partial. God is no respecter of persons, and God is free. Absolutely free. He is I say, dependent on no one and no thing. And he has determined that true Israel, true Israel, are the spiritual seed of Abraham. All those who would place their faith and trust in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. They are the true Israel, as it were, within Israel. Paul explains the determination of God to choose one son of Abraham over the other son of Abraham The determination of God to choose one son of Isaac over the other son of Isaac, that determination is made by God. It is made by God himself, and it is made by God to prove, verse 11, that salvation is not according to physical descent, and salvation is not according to individual character or individual characteristics. It's not according to circumstances. But rather, think with me now, salvation is entirely according to the determined will and purpose of God in the election of a particular people to himself, not of works, but of him who calls. That's Paul's point. That's where we're at, okay? Neither our heritage nor our works, even those works that may be foreseen, God knows it all, doesn't matter in that sense. That heritage, nor those works, have any determining effect upon God's free election of one individual over another individual. That's what we're talking about in Romans chapter 9 now, okay? It's an election, an election that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1, as an election in and through Jesus Christ. In other words, the election is not arbitrary. God is not arbitrary like the God of Islam. God acts with intentionality. God acts with purpose, It's an election that is in and through Jesus Christ. It is an election only because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an election that is made before the foundation of the world. It is an election that is determined in God's own love, with the great love with which he loved us, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of your will. No, according to the good pleasure of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And because of that great love with which he loved us, he has made us alive to, together with Jesus Christ that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. So why did God choose Isaac? Why did God choose Isaac? Because God in eternity had determined to set his love upon Isaac. Why did God choose Jacob. Think with me. Because God had determined in eternity to set his love upon Jacob. That's what we have from the scriptures. Those things that are revealed are for us. Those things that are hidden are for God. We don't always know the plans and purposes that God makes behind the curtain, so to speak. Those things that are not revealed to us. This we know, that God, because of his love, determined to set his love on a particular people and to choose them for his name. Why did God choose to save you? If you've turned from sin to put faith and trust in Jesus Christ, why is that? Who has made you to differ from another? It's because God has determined in eternity to set his distinguishing love upon you. Let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> he knows you from eternity, and he has determined to set his love upon you. And that's why our salvation is so sure, why it's so secure. Now, it's at that point, at this point in our text, that Paul anticipates an objection. Paul has been, at this point, preaching the gospel to Gentiles and Jews alike for decades, And he is well familiar with the objections that will most certainly be raised. Paul, at this point, has heard them all. He's heard them all. And concerning God's free election of one person over another. And again, that's what we're talking about. God's free election of one person over another with no regard to individual merit, with no regard to individual works or individual characteristics or individual circumstances. In light of that, someone will rise up and object That's not fair. That's not fair. Will not the judge of all the earth do right, Paul? If God chooses, as you say, Paul, with no regard for the works of men under the law, then then you have portrayed God as unrighteous, and the so-called gospel that you're preaching is false. That's what they would say. Paul answers then in verse fourteen. What shall we say then? What are we going to say to that objection? Is there then unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. If you remember, it's been some time ago, but if you remember back in Romans chapter 3, this question of God's righteousness came up in Romans chapter 3. Turn that back there with me to Romans chapter 3, verse 1. That question of God's righteousness has been brought up before. Paul had just made a point that a true Jew, that's the end of chapter 2, that a true Jew is not one who is a Jew outwardly. right? A true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. And true circumcision is not outward in the flesh. True circumcision is a circumcision of the heart. A circumcision by the Spirit. And so that raises the question in chapter 3, verse 1 then. What advantage then has the Jew? What point is there to being a Jew then? What profit is circumcision? Verse 2, much in every way. Chiefly because to them, to the Jews, were committed the very oracles of God. God gave them his word. But verse 3, what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Can you see how that's the very same objection that's being raised in chapter 9? Has the word of God failed? Has God failed to keep his promises? Has God abandoned his people, abandoned the covenant? It's here in chapter 3 that Paul introduces the subject of our objection here in chapter 9. What if ethnic, physical Israel is largely unbelieving? What if they're left to, to wallow in their unbelief? Does that mean that God has somehow been unfaithful to them? Verse 4 Certainly not, meganoita. May it never be. God forbid. It's the strongest possible negation, the strongest words that Paul can employ here. Indeed, verse 4 Let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified, that you may be shown to be righteous in your words, and you may overcome it, you may conquer when you are judged by wicked men. But if, verse 5, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Again, is God unrighteous when he inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? God is righteous. And even in chapter three, when we went through that text together, it's already been established that the righteousness of God is an unassailable truth. It is an inarguable truth, right? So both Paul and both his Jewish objectors are both arguing here for the righteousness of God. Back in Romans chapter nine, verse 14, however, Paul's objector here in Romans chapter nine would accuse Paul himself of preaching a theology, of preaching a gospel that would undermine the righteousness of God. So Paul's objector is essentially accusing Paul of preaching a gospel that undermines the righteousness of God. Paul, if what you're saying is true, then God is unrighteous. And what the problem was, the problem is not with the theology that Paul's preaching. The problem is with the conception of righteousness, divine righteousness that the Jews possessed. They're thinking about righteousness in wrong ways, wrong-headed ways. So Paul answers them in no uncertain terms in verse 14. Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. May it never be the strongest possible denial. Any thought of unrighteousness with God is entirely intolerable, untenable. Okay? Paul dismisses the objection out of hand. For Paul, the issue is not the righteousness of God. We're going to vindicate. Paul is going to vindicate from this text the righteousness of God. But for Paul, the issue is not the righteousness of God. For Paul, the issue is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Think with me for a moment. Think with me. By restricting the saving work of God to physical and ethnic Israel alone, the Jews would essentially restrict the absolute freedom of God to do as he wills. That's what we're talking about, okay? You see the point. By restricting the saving work of God to physical and ethnic Israel alone, the Jews would essentially bind God, essentially restrict the absolute freedom of God to do as he wills. And Paul is upholding the absolute freedom of God, the absolute sovereignty of God. All Christians, according to the word of God, should uphold the absolute freedom, the absolute sovereignty of God to do as he wills. By binding God to physical Israel, the Jew essentially binds his will. Okay, think with me now. A Jew might say, he has to save me. He has to save me, why? Because I have the blood of Abraham coursing through my veins. He has to save me, why? Because I was circumcised the eighth day. There was a saying among the Jews that Abraham would stand at the gates of heaven. And Abraham was there standing at the gates of heaven to check who was circumcised and who wasn't. If anyone circumcised, he automatically got in. And if anyone wasn't, he was cast out. All right? A wrong headed view of salvation. (laughs) But a Jew might say, He has to save me, I'm a member of the covenant. I'm a son of Abraham. I have Abraham as my father. I've been circumcised. Their view of divine righteousness was that a, righteousness, uh, that a righteous God, right, their view of divine righteousness was that a righteous God must elect on the basis of some individual or corporate distinction. That God must elect on the basis of descendancy from Abraham or those aspects of the law. In this case, God had to elect them on the basis of their Jewishness, their descent from Abraham, or according to their moral standing as those who kept the law, supposedly kept the law. On that basis, if that were the basis of righteousness, well, then God could be charged with unrighteousness right? because he's not electing based on what Paul is preaching. God's not electing on that basis. On that basis, certainly God would be unrighteous to have elected Jacob over Esau before they were born and before they had done anything good or evil. It's on that basis, that understanding, that false understanding of divine righteousness would lead to this charge. But by adopting their entirely wrongheaded, presumptuous definition of divine righteousness, the Jews forced themselves then to abandon the doctrine of God's sovereignty, God's freedom. The Jews forced themselves to abandon it. The Arminian, in our day, does the very same thing. Falls into the very same trap. Binding God to an unbiblical and untenable definition of divine righteousness. We're talking about not Armenians, people who live east of Turkey. Armenians, those who idolize free will. That's who we're talking about. And by binding God to an unbiblical or untenable definition of divine righteousness, namely that God must uphold man's free will in order to be righteous, they essentially bind God to the decisions of sinful men. Do you see? And they restrict The absolute freedom of God to do as he wills. He is the one who works all things after the counsel of his own will. He's the one who decrees all things whatsoever that come to pass. God is absolutely sovereign and free. Can you see how the Arminian today does essentially the same thing? Falls into the same trap of the Jewish people. Just from a different direction. (laughs) It's the freedom of God to do as he wills that Paul is supporting in this text. The issue is not the unrighteousness of God or that accusation of unrighteousness. God is absolutely righteous. The issue to Paul is the issue of God's sovereignty. The issue to Paul is God's freedom to do as he pleases. God's own freedom to do as he pleases, think with me, is the primary Principle at work in God's own choice over Isaac of Isaac over Ishmael. Can you think of anything else from the text that enters into that? Is there anything else there to support the fact that God is not absolutely free and sovereign to have chosen Isaac over Ishmael? That's Paul's point: is that God is absolutely free and has chosen. Isaac over Ishmael. God's own freedom to do as he pleases is the primary principle at work in God's own choice of Jacob over Esau. That's the point of the text. And that principle is the operative principle at work in God's dealings with all sinners, Jew and Gentile alike. We're going to see that as we continue working through our text. God, in determining the beneficiaries of his mercy... God does not base his determination on anything owing to the person, on anything outside of himself. The choice of those he has elected for himself is not due some distinction in their birth. It's not due some distinction in their effort. It's not due some distinction in their decision-making. It's not due some distinction in their circumstances. It's not due to anything that a person might claim or make for himself. God elects freely and God elects freely according to the good pleasure of his own will. Now, If you're thinking carefully about all of the implications of that biblical truth, then you make it to the point where it starts stripping some gears in your head. There is a tendency of men in our worldly thinking to bristle against God's own sovereignty, God's own freedom. But nonetheless, that's exactly what the text is asserting. The issue to Paul is not the righteousness of God. That is a settled fact. The issue to Paul is the sovereignty of God, God's absolute freedom to do as he wills. Now, in support of that premise, in support of that point, Paul quotes in our text two Old Testament passages. In both cases, with these quotes that Paul now is going to bring forward, it's the the force of their context, it's the weight of their context that Paul wants to bring to bear on his current point in chapter nine, right? The first of those texts Paul references in verse 15. For he, God, says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now This is fascinating, and I hope you get this with me. This is a quote from Exodus chapter 33. Turn there with me to Exodus 33, and let's look at this in its context. I love how the New Testament authors, in this case, particularly Paul, interprets these Old Testament texts and understands them in light of New Testament theology. It's just uh, it teaches us how to understand our Bibles. Should. It is really, really helpful. Now in Exodus 33, <clears throat> Israel, think with me now. I'm going say that a lot because these these <laughs> these texts are difficult. We've got to think, we've got to process, we've got to be engaged, okay? Think with me. Israel is at Mount Sinai. In Exodus 33, Exodus 33 is in the context of Israel's grievous sin with the golden calf. That incident with the golden calf took place in Exodus 32. And after Israel commits this idolatry, this grievous offense in Exodus 32, Moses steps in and begins to immediately intercede for the people. Moses begins to intercede. Moses is pleading with God to forgive them, pleading with God. Forgive them, God, or else blot my name out of your book forever. That was Moses' prayer, okay? So God responds to Moses in that prayer by promising to blot out of his book all those who had sinned against him and then charges Moses to lead the people to the land which God had promised to give them. Moses, I'm gonna blot out the names of all those who sinned against me, but you take those who are remaining and you lead them into the promised land. But rather than go up with the people himself, God is going to send his angel before them. God explains why in Exodus chapter 33 in verse 2. I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite and the Amorite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, that's a description of the promised land. For I will not go up in your midst, why God, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. All right? Now, uh, powerful statement. Israel has just sinned with a golden calf, and God says, I'm not going to be in your midst. Otherwise, I might devour you in my fire, right? So I'm going to send my angel before you. Moses is not satisfied with that concession. In his intercession for the people, intercession, Moses is not satisfied with that concession. And so he pursues God. And he pursues God relentlessly to forgive and to restore the people. And his desire, Moses' desire in his intercession for the people of Israel is twofold. One, that God himself would go up with them to the land that he promised them. And two, that God would fully restore this people to himself as his covenant people. Now think about that. That's an audacious request on the part of Moses, right? They, like minutes ago, <laughs> they're standing at the fire with Aaron and his calf pops out, right? <laughs> and they're, this is our God who brought us out of the land. of. And then the next chapter, Moses is pleading, God, forgive them. Go up with us in our midst to the land that you've promised us and renew your covenant with us. Seems Pretty audacious uh, request of Moses here. But God, Moses is interceding for the people and wants God to fully restore them. Listen, verse 12. 33, verse 12. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know. Yet you have said to me, I know you by name. You have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, God, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider this nation, this stiff-necked, rebellious people, this nation is your people. (laughs) They're your people. Verse 14, And God said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, Verse 15, He's pleading with God. Do you see? If your presence does not go with us, (laughs) then do not bring us up from here. In other words, cast us away. If your presence isn't among us, then we're not your people. That's essentially what Moses is saying we're not your people. For how then, verse 16, how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight? There's how can it be proven, God, that you are gracious except you go with us? Now think with me Moses pleading with God to prove his grace, to prove his gracious character by restoring this people who just worship the golden calf. In other words, those two things are held together. This is not independent. What Moses is pleading is not independent of the golden calf incidents. It is as a response to the golden calf incident. And Moses is essentially saying, they are a stiff-necked people. They are rebellious people. And Because they're so stiff-necked and because they're so rebellious, God, show your grace. You are gracious. You are merciful. Show your grace. Show that you're a gracious God by going up with us. How will it be known, God, that your people and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. A process with me. Moses knows exactly what he's asking. Moses is asking that a stiff-necked and idolatrous nation would be distinguished. They would be distinguished from all the other nations that are on the earth as God's own people. And they've just sinned with a golden cap. And on what basis are they to be distinguished? You notice Moses, Moses doesn't plead on the basis of their righteousness. They've been grossly unrighteous. Moses doesn't plead on the basis of any circumstance. Moses doesn't plead, they're a beautiful people. They're a large people, right? None of those things from Deuteronomy 7. Moses doesn't plead on the basis of anything to do with them or upon any circumstance. Moses pleads on the basis of God's covenant promise, on the basis of God's covenantal character. Moses was making a claim, as it were, on the astonishing Willingness of God to act in mercy. That's Moses' claim. Moses knew that God was gracious and merciful. And Moses is making a claim on that grace. He is, to use a word that uh, Murray himself used, Moses is exploiting that grace. Interceding for the people of Israel with God. Pleading with, God's, with God for his grace. Knowing that God is gracious and merciful. Not on anything distinguishable or distinctive in Israel. Notice the similarity, Romans chapter 9. There isn't anything distinguishing or distinctive about Israel herself. Israel is chosen not because of Israel, but because God had determined to set his electing love upon that people. Okay? There are stiff-necked people and idolatrous people, but rather... Moses is making a claim entirely upon the electing purpose of God alone in simply choosing Israel as his people. That's Moses' claim. Moses appeals to nothing of merit in the people themselves. He appeals to no extenuating circumstances. He simply presses the grace and mercy of God based upon God's electing purpose alone. Verse 17. So the Lord said to Moses... (laughs) displaying his his glory. I will also do this thing that you have spoken. Wow. I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Now it's very interesting, very interesting. Moses then immediately attaches a request to this promise of God. God has promised, I'm gonna do what you've asked. I'm gonna promise that I'm, I'm gonna do what you asked. And then Moses immediately attaches this request, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now think with me. In the context, the request for God to reveal his glory to Moses is essentially a request by Moses to have God confirm his willingness to show mercy to a stiff-necked people. In other words, God's glory is wrapped up in God, the astonishing willingness of God to lavish grace and mercy upon an undeserving people. Right, God's glory is manifest in a in a, His lavish grace, His abounding mercy upon undeserving, indistinguishable, wretched sinners like you and me. God's glory is wrapped up entirely. And God's a willingness to show that, to demonstrate that. So what is Moses asking? Show me your glory. Show me your glory. I want to see manifestation of who you are, your goodness and your righteousness. Notice what he says. In other, God's own glory now, God's own glory is the basis for his astonishing mercy, his astonishing grace. And what does God say to Moses now in response? Verse 19, then he said to Moses, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. What is all that goodness? What is that name? How is that represented? We ordinarily think of his goodness in these terms. Verse 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's glory is wrapped up in his sovereign freedom. "...to pour out grace and mercy upon whom he wills, with no regard to any merit in the creature, with no regard for anything within them, but entirely upon the good pleasure of his own will." Do you see how this connects to Romans chapter 9? Okay, That text is quoted in Romans 9.15. "...I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion." The Lord says, I'll make my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord. Now, God fulfills this promise in chapter 34. Flip the page. Verse 5. But the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. The name representing the character or the essence, the nature of God here. The nature of a thing, a person, here in this case, Jehovah. Verse 6. And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. In other words, God's glory displayed in God pouring out grace and mercy without regard to any work or any individual distinctive characteristics of the creature himself, but entirely according to the good pleasure of his own will. Now, all those attributes of God, we would normally associate those attributes of God with God's goodness. But the Lord then continues with other attributes. And they are also attributes of his goodness, namely his justice and righteousness and righteous retribution. By no means, verse seven, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's also God's goodness. God's goodness in showing justice, right? God's righteous retribution. Verse eight, So Moses, what was his response? Moses made haste, bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. That's the response of God's people to God's glory. Do you see? It is the glory of God, the essence of his being, the manifestation of his divine nature to display mercy and grace and patience and goodness and truth and compassion and forgiveness. And it is the glory of God And a manifestation of his very nature, the essence of his being, to display, on the other hand, his justice and his righteousness and his righteous retribution. Solely on the basis of his own person, within himself, and not according to anything without himself, solely on the basis of his sovereign will and apart from any obligation outside of himself, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And Moses is banking on it because God has said he will be merciful to Israel. And the glory that God reveals to Moses as he makes all his goodness to pass before him and the very essence of the name that God proclaims to Moses as he passes by is a manifestation of the divine prerogative and is a manifestation of the divine nature that is alone the basis on which God determines to renew his covenant with a stiff-necked and rebellious, undeserving, and sinful, idolatrous people. Do you see? It's the manifestation of the divine prerogative. It is What it means to be God. Israel doesn't deserve it. Israel cannot possibly earn it. It is nothing that is owed to Israel. Israel can't claim anything. Do you see? God's determination to restore Israel to himself has nothing to do with any distinction within Israel herself. That's the point that Paul's making in Romans chapter 9. God makes the distinction. God is the one who determines. And God chose Isaac over Ishmael. God chose Jacob over Esau. God chooses Moses over Pharaoh. It has everything to do with the determined will of God alone as manifest in his free and sovereign electing purpose. It is the divine prerogative. God acts freely according to the good pleasure of his own will to the praise of his own glory. And in interceding for the people in Exodus chapter 33, Moses essentially claims that same sovereign freedom with which God has elected Israel. And Moses essentially says, Essentially, if Israel didn't do anything to deserve or distinguish themselves to deserve or to merit your grace and mercy, then frankly, Israel can't do anything to separate themselves. (laughs) Did you see? Right? Once God has determined, then it is the prerogative of God alone. And Moses basically claims that sovereign freedom of God in his freedom of choosing Israel, claims that in interceding for the people. It's the basis for why God God's own free sovereignty in electing an undeserving people is the basis that Moses pleads for why God should now forgive and restore them. They are after all the people that you have chosen, Moses says to God. They are after all the people you have chosen. Now back in Romans 9. Think with me brothers and sisters, that is a powerful Profound, deeply magnificent argument for the assurance of our salvation in Jesus Christ. Profound. There is a tendency on the part of God's people to wallow in anguish over their sin, and we get it, right? We're a sinful people. We sin against God. We don't want to sin against God. We know that God is holy. We know that God is not to be trifled with. We fear the Lord. By the spirit of God within us, we fear the Lord, right? But for the believer, it's not right, if you will. For the believer, um, under what might be perceived as the frowning displeasure of God against our sin, for that believer then to place themselves back out from under the saving grace of God and under the condemnation of the law, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so it is of the essence of faith (laughs) with Moses to turn to God in faith, to turn to Jesus Christ in faith and say, I didn't deserve anything. There was no reason within me that would have distinguished me from anybody else. And yet, Lord, according to the kind pleasure of your own will, you have saved me. You've given me a new heart. You've indwelt me with your spirit. You've caused me to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and I'm yours. Lord, change me, renew me, forgive me, cleanse me. But I know, Lord, don't forgive me. Don't forsake me, right? Uh, I know you'll not turn your back on me. I know that you'll never leave me or forsake me. I know that I'm yours, and I know that you are mine, right? And that is that's the essence of faith to, to, to take God at his word. In Romans chapter 9, Paul then, I want you to see, hang in there with me, Paul then interprets or explains how that free, sovereign, electing purpose of God then applies in the salvation of the individual. Verse 16, so then, Paul says, It is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but it is of God who shows mercy. It pertaining to mercy Compassion, forgiveness, grace, salvation. It, that salvation, is not according to any act of human will, no matter how strong. It is not according to any human desire, no matter how great. It is not according to any human effort, no matter how zealous, no matter how diligent. Do you see? The first term has to do with man's desire, man's volition, the determination belonging to man's own will. The second term has to do with man's effort, man's exertions. A person may desire salvation, a person may seek salvation according to their own heart and mind, right? A person may pursue salvation and may pursue salvation with diligent effort. At the end of the day, Paul is saying that neither our desire nor our effort has anything to do with the principle by which God has determined to show mercy. Nothing to do with it, which at the end of the day destroys Arminianism, and it destroys the objection of the Jews that God is somehow unrighteous. Paul is saying that neither our desire, our decision, our effort, has anything to do with the principle at work by which God determines to show mercy. The determination to show mercy in salvation is according to God's will alone. God acts freely in the salvation of a sinner. I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. I don't know how you could say it any clearer, and yet we still want to argue against it, Right, The distinction that God made between Ishmael and Isaac, the distinction that God has made between Jacob and Esau, the distinction that he makes between you if you're in Christ and those who die in their sins, is the fulfillment of God's covenant promise to those who are the beneficiaries of his electing grace, the beneficiaries of his determined purpose. And God is free. The word mercy there is of particular interest. Think with me. The word mercy is of particular interest because um, mercy cannot possibly be given in response to some claim. You can't give mercy in response to a claim, you owe me mercy, right then and there. It's not mercy anymore, whatever it is. okay. It's impossible to bestow mercy and grace upon some claim to mercy and grace. That's exactly why those terms are used. Mercy and grace cannot depend upon the will of the person who receives it, Otherwise, it's no longer mercy, and it's no longer grace. Mercy and grace depend entirely, or they cannot depend, upon the effort of a person to receive it. Otherwise, it's no longer mercy, and it's no longer grace. If God has mercy on whomever he will have mercy, and if God has compassion upon whomever he will have compassion, then it is not of him who wills, nor is it of him who runs, but rather it is entirely of God who shows mercy. It's God's will that is determinative. It is God's decision that is determinative. And Paul's point is that God is absolutely and entirely free in dispensing grace and mercy. That point challenges conventional or worldly man-centered conceptions about the nature of God and the way of salvation, doesn't it? There's a strong, a strong tendency in fallen men to bristle against that truth. And if it weren't in the Bible, we wouldn't believe it, frankly, right? World religions, not a one of them uh, upholds the sovereignty, the freedom of God. It's because they're all inventions of men or demons. In the verses that follow, verses that we'll consider in part two on this text next week, Paul, to use a pun, pun doubles down. <laughs> Paul doubles down by appealing to God's dealings with Pharaoh, dealings that will further stretch our conceptions of God's own freedom. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. We'll look carefully at the grammar of that text so that we understand exactly what the Lord is saying. And what is Paul's interpretation of God's dealings with Pharaoh? Verse 18, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. We'll look at that next week. Our God is in heaven, says the psalmist, and he does whatever he pleases. Amen. To the glory of Almighty God, Ishmael and Isaac. "'Jacob and Esau, Moses and Pharaoh. "'The principle at work that determines "'the nature of God's conduct toward men "'is his own will, acting in fulfillment "'of his own eternal and electing purpose. "'He does not act with respect to merit. "'In fact, all those with whom he sovereignly "'and freely deals are deserving of only justice and wrath. "'He does not act with respect to merit.' And all of God's actions are therefore altogether free and righteous. They are expressions of his sovereign will. That doesn't mean that God is arbitrary. God acts with purpose. He acts with expressed intentionality. And he acts freely. Entirely consonant with his nature. Entirely harmonious with his essence, as it were. Manifestations of his name and his glory that he makes pass before us in his dealings with men. And therefore entirely free of any unrighteousness. These things shouldn't cause us, brothers and sisters, to bristle against them. Rather, they should cause uh, cause us to humble ourselves into worship. Worship. Fully trust him for his wisdom. Fully trust him for his righteousness, his goodness. Fully trust him for his wisdom and will. And with Moses, brothers and sisters, what this should do, it's with Moses, cause us to make haste Bow our heads to the ground and worship God. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord. We praise you and thank you that you are sovereign and free. You have freedom over the clay uh, to act in accord with your very nature, your very being in goodness and in compassion and forgiveness. But also, Lord, we understand in justice and in righteousness and in retributive wrath. I pray, Lord, that no one, no one this morning would walk out of this room without considering your sovereign freedom to act in accord with all of their sin and rebellion against you in righteous retribution for all they've done and that they would be objects in eternity of your wrath to do their sin. And I pray that they would turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ knowing, Lord, that you are merciful and gracious that you have determined to show mercy and grace I pray, Lord, that it would be according uh, to your word, to your will, that you would show mercy and grace to them. For their eternal good, it would certainly be Lord, but to your eternal praise and glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.